Shart International presents Fresh Talk, conversations about creativity in the 21st century. This episode of Fresh Talk features a conversation with Janet Biggs, an artist whose work you might remember from our first season. Since we last spoke, Janet's creative drive has taken her inside a volcano and to the edge of the legendary Silk Road. But no matter where she goes, music follows. This is Kathy Bird, Fresh Art Producer, and today I'm in Williamsburg with Janet Biggs, an artist whose work I've followed for many years, and I'm really happy to be here with you today, Janet. Well, I'm really happy to be back on Fresh Art International, and it's great to see you, Kathy. I've been following your work from girls to horses to sports and drugs and to these extreme territories of the Arctic and volcanoes. We saw each other when you had a mid-career survey. And in that, the full range of your work was stunning. You know, it was an interesting experience for me to be able to see that scope of work, um, production from 15 years all together in one space. So it really did span all those periods you were talking about. Um, my early interest in identity, which used a lot of girls and horse imagery, through uh, an exploration of identity, again, using generally world-class athletes, uh, and then trying to understand a sense of self in terms of medication, which came from, you know, there's a, an undercurrent that runs through all this work. And then at, at some point, the athletes and that focus and that obsession turned into also an obsession with place. It wasn't enough that it was just person it became place as well. And I thought that they were so intrinsically tied that a sense of self had everything to do with a sense of place. I recently was, was actually on a residency where artists that were displaced because of Hurricane Sandy. And it was one of those moments where I was talking to the other artists and it was so profound for me where they, you know, one person completely lost any idea of, um, of studio or, you know, how, how to go forward because his place was gone. Um, so to get back to my connection with place, uh, for me, place has to be extreme. It has to be ends of the earth. Um, I, I'm continuing that and I try and push myself in new ways in the production of the work, which is kind of my backstory. But in terms of the work itself, um, the landscape and the place has become an equal character to people who exist within that landscape that I'm focusing on. So what took you to Indonesia? Why did you want to go there? What was waiting there for you? You know, when I talk about extreme landscape, I think when I was five was when I got my first issue of National Geographic. And I've just been committed to that magazine forever, you know, with its problems, with its pluses. But I saw an image in National Geographic probably, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago now. You know, it was a long time ago. And it was just this incredibly gorgeous image inside an active volcano in Indonesia. And it's stuck in my brain, which is kind of my barometer. You know, if, if something stays there long enough, then I finally give into it and say, okay, I have to go and explore this and figure out why it's still there. And in the case of this volcano, the Ijen volcano, which is in the East Java region of Indonesia, there, there are men in there mining sulfur 
inside an active volcano. And so it's this weird combination of the most horrific thing I've ever seen, the most exploitive, horrific thing I've ever seen in my life, and yet this, you know, just indescribable beauty of the region. In the volcano, you determined to follow a laborer, and I'm wondering how did you find poetry in labor within a toxic environment like that? It's so beautiful there. Inside the caldera is the largest sulfuric acid lake at the base of the caldera, which is this turquoise that is just, you know, luscious, luscious blue. So the sulfur dioxide fumes are billowing off this lake, and they're coming up through the fumaroles and, and the walls of the caldera. And laborers go in, and they tap these clay pipes into the, the crevices, the fumaroles, and they catch the fumes, it condenses, and it pours out as liquid sulfur. So when it's pouring out, it's this blood red. And then it solidifies into what we all know as sulfur, which is this, you know, just intense, intense yellow. So you have these colors, you have this environment, and while the fumes are unbelievably toxic, and, you know, it's not rotten egg smell, it is so acrid, when it hits you, all you can do, even in a gas mask, is just get as low as you can and groan until it stops. But even that, even those clouds billowing up, becomes really beautiful in that environment. And then there are these guys that are, you know, independent uh, employees. There is no overarching company. There is nothing. They, they weave their own baskets. They go into this volcano. They, there's nothing mechanized at all. They use steel rods, and they break apart the sulfur. They put it, fit it into the basket, and they carry out more than they weigh. And this whole trip, so you climb up the outside of the volcano, which is about two to three hours, and then into the caldera, which is about another hour, load up your basket and do the exact same thing back down, carrying more than your body weight. And within that, there is also a kind of beauty, which is they've had to develop a very specific gait. You know, there's this um, moment where the only way they can carry more than their body weight is to drop their center of balance down and then they move as smoothly as possible because the strap of the basket across their shoulder not only cuts into flesh but also kind of reshapes the body in, in really severe ways. And so to minimize that, they've developed this gait. And so it looks like beautiful dancers moving in this unbelievably gorgeous space. And then you understand what's actually happening there or you know, as you understand what's happening there. And so for me, the, I think the biggest moment of poetry, of transcendence, was on, I was there for two weeks, sleeping on the rim of the volcano with a couple of the miners in gas masks in a very small tent with too many of us in it. And even within these horrific conditions, Abi, who is the miner that I ended up focusing on, as he's carrying more than his body weight, would stop and point out something that was so beautiful I needed to recognize it. So he was able to see outside of his situation in ways that I couldn't even imagine. You know, for me, what always happens is I go in first with a kind of documentary eye and record an action, record a place. And then once I'm back in the studio, another part of the poetry for me is I have no intention whatsoever of making documentary films. I am very much an artist first and foremost, and so I have to then figure out how to frame it, how to clarify it in ways that expand it for me and hopefully expand it for my viewer and give them a new kind of access and hopefully allow them to make their own decisions. To create one of her poetic visual metaphors, Janet filmed an atmospheric test achieved by launching weather balloons. So in this case, I juxtaposed the footage that I had shot of Abi within the Gen Volcano 
with footage of NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Agency's balloon launch. And it's something that's synchronized around the world, so I really liked that kind of global perspective. There are balloon launches that go from both poles at the exact same time and kind of all over the Earth. They're, they're doing these balloon launches that give them a global weather analysis, you know, a way to analyze the weather in a global perspective. And so I, I used a balloon launch not only as a kind of metaphor for transcendence, you know, because you see this balloon sort of lyrically moving off into space, but also because I think it holds a promise, or a promise that we understand in the West, certainly, of alleviating hardship through science, you know, that it's going to improve our lives. But I think there's so many parts of the world where that doesn't even touch. There is no promise of science. There is what I would consider no hope, and yet the human spirit is unbelievable in those situations and still has hope and still finds some kind of transcendence. It is a sad piece, ultimately, the final piece that I completed, because anytime there's a balloon launch, it goes high enough into the atmosphere, and then you know it expands, expands, expands as it is um, ascending, and, and it has to burst at some point. And so it does burst, and then it, it comes back down. There's hope, there's promise, and often it's failed. In researching and developing her projects, Janet looks for opportunities to work with scientists and students. I worked with students at MIT to do this balloon launch. I filmed at NOAA, but then I also went up to MIT and worked with some students that were doing balloon launches and attached a camera onto the balloon um, as it went up. So I had both the from-ground perspective of the ascent and the onboard perspective of once it got up into the atmosphere and burst and then plummets back down. So I see your work with the weather balloons and the Arctic and the volcano as being very tied or connected, concerned with the environment. Is that a continuing desire for you to explore and use as a metaphor? I really think of it in terms of the elemental um, and, and so I am constantly looking for places that somehow fit whatever it is that my definition of the elemental is. And often those kinds of places are the places at most risk in our, on our planet. You know, I think that anytime I point my camera, it's political. It's a political act, just by the fact that I'm focusing attention on a region or an, an action. There's certainly an activist side to my personality, but I keep that separate from my art production. I think that you know, when work is too pedantic and, you know, overtly political in terms of an environmental statement, at least for me, often it shuts it down. It's so specific that it doesn't allow you to enter in and bring new meaning or find new meaning within the piece. It's important to me that that does happen. You know, that for, for me, that becomes successful. I mean, it defines a successful piece. Janet deeply values the world she's able to enter as an artist. I think I have a huge degree of privilege because I'm an artist and a tourist coexisting, uh, and I get to go to amazing parts of the world to produce work and see regions that probably won't be there forever, if not be there in the near future. You know, and I recognize that, and I think there is a power through that, and there is just by presenting images that can cause change, can help cause change. But the political voice is not my strong voice. The poetic voice is... Uh, is what I really try and seek. Right. I'm thinking about the fact that that documentary element 
is there, the poetry is there, but one way you keep it separate is relying on the visual language and the audio instead of, you're not interviewing these people, how do you feel about where you are or what is your life like? You're just showing it. That seems to be really important to you. Yeah, I think um, I very much do not define myself as a documentary filmmaker in any way, even though I ride that line very closely sometimes. Um, But it's important I tip off it. You know, if I don't slide sideways off that line, then it doesn't work for me as a piece. The work is getting more narrative and structure. Sometimes I'll blow that apart and do a multi-channel installation, which makes it even less specific in terms of narrative and more experiential. But even when it's a single channel piece with just one screen that you're looking at, which is, you know, traditional movie setup, I don't want or I haven't wanted to date because I have something coming up that I may change on this. But, uh, you know, I, I don't want the voiceover. I don't want the interviews. I love, you know, interweaving music, not only just the music itself, but often musical performances, uh, the artists that, that produce that music for me, in ways that I think they give voice to what you're seeing. You know, they witness it in a really, again, elemental kind of way that becomes essential, is evocative in terms of emotion, um, but not specific in terms of limitations. I was just thinking about where you went after the volcano, you went someplace that people dream about going. It's very romantic and exotic, the Silk Road in China. What led you there, and what what was the work you made? The Silk Road, it actually started from a very good friend of mine, Barbara Pollock, who's an art writer. She's written uh, amazing pieces for The Times and a book about contemporary art in China. And, um, And she's always had this dream of putting together a group of friends and traveling the Silk Road. It was one of those things where I always said, yeah, yeah, I'd love to do that. That would be great. And then it got closer and closer to reality. And suddenly, like, the Silk Road and that whole trip stopped being this romantic notion. And, you know, like, it, it changed. Because if I really was going to commit both the time and the resources, write grants, et cetera, to be able to do that, I needed to find a way to work within the region. What I found was that Barbara's trip and that going from place to place that is everything about the Silk Road and, you know, and all the romantic notions of travel and from oasis to oasis wouldn't function for me. It's not how I work. What I did was uh, find a home base, which was Kashgar and then Hotan. Um, these are cities in the, in the furthest west of China um, on the Pakistan border. We were right in the Pamir Mountains. Uh, we actually went up into the Pamirs and got about an hour away from the Pakistan border. Um, but there was enough military action that we thought maybe not to go further. Why did Janet choose to focus her lens on the Uyghur people living at the far western edge of China? The reason I, I decided to use that as a home base and what became so compelling for me, why I wanted to do this, was once I started researching, I realized that all Uyghur kids have to go to boarding schools where they're only taught Mandarin. So when they go home on the weekends, they lose their language and they can't speak to their parents anymore. It kind of goes on and on. I mean, they tore down all the traditional, the Han Chinese came in and tore down all the traditional homes saying that they weren't earthquake safe, even though they've been in existence for 2,000 years or something. There are all these moments that are happening in that place. 
And when you talk to, when I talk to my Uyghur guides, both of them said, we, you know, we won't be here by the next generation. We as a people won't be here. I mean, as the violence is escalating, and uh, if anyone's watching the news now, it, it just severely escalated with, uh, with knife stabbings um, in the East. And, you know, unlike the Tibetans, they're not pacifists. So it, it's really, everything is, is getting so much more heightened. One thing that was fascinating for me is I'm talking to people with families that care about the same things that all of us care about, which is happiness, family, providing for your loved ones. And they're saying, but without hope, they are turning into radicals. And their hope now is to get over the border into Pakistan and, and become jihadists. So to be able to see that and have a different understanding and a more nuanced understanding about how opinions, viewpoints, world viewpoints are, are created, come into being, and, and how just, you know, at times random, at times very specific influences and, and situations change people in such profound ways. And I'm wondering, what drove Janet to the desert? So ultimately what I did, um, because it was risky to be there as a Westerner, and any Uyghur person, guide that I was around a long time, I put them at risk, and we were followed by... Um, by security police everywhere. And so at one point we decided it, the easiest thing to do is just go into the desert and uh, that it, we would be safest in the desert. And the Taklamakan Desert is this amazing second largest desert in the world. It's an advancing desert rather than a receding one. The first time it was crossed was in 1984, which makes you know it's not like not an easy desert. And so we took a caravan. We had, we had six camels, two camel men, a translator, myself, and a backup camera person. So there we are in 125 to 130 degree temperatures every day. That was only broken by the sandstorm, you know, which brought the temperature down to 100, but had its own set of problems. But it, it gave me a moment to sort of take all the political and again, find this visual and find an, an analogy through the visual. And I realized that when I got back to the studio, it, again, it wasn't the specifics of the Uyghur situation that I needed to focus on. I do have an obligation to get that out because the Chinese press is not getting that out. Uh, um, you know, there's so much censorship. But for me in as an artist, as a, uh, in terms of the production, you know, I needed to look broader and I needed to look at at that overarching question of cultural loss. You know, change and assimilation is inherent and it happens to all of us um, in different ways and at different times. And sometimes it can be subtle and it feels, it, it, you don't even realize change is happening and sometimes it's incredibly violent. Uh, so the piece I made became just about that rather than about the specific situation. Far from what anybody would expect from that trip. You know, in some ways, far from what I initially expected from that trip. And I think that's part of being able to make a successful piece is for me to not be so attached to my original concepts and to be able to embrace failure. You know, there are times when I'm pulling my camera out of the bag and, you know, and the sand is getting so trapped in it and it's um, shutting down and I'm losing camera after camera and thinking, like, am I going to get anything out of here? I think in some ways that experience, and certainly the footage that I got from those moments before the cameras died, was uh, essential to the final piece. So looking at failure as opportunity versus endpoint has become important for me. You just got back from Cartagena, and that's a very exotic idea for me as well. 
I've never been to Colombia. And the photographs we were able to share on Fresh View that Terry Berkowitz sent, one of the participating artists that provided some of the imagery, it looked like an amazing experience. It was my first trip to South America. This is actually the very first biennial to happen in Colombia. Um, Cartagena is the most magical place I've been. You know, it, it's everything you think it's going to be. It's this beautiful walled colonial town. It's on the Caribbean, so it's got, you know, the temperatures were just incredible and beautiful, and the breezes are coming through. And then the curator, um, Berta Seichel, who uh, came from the Reina Sofia Museum, did the, a phenomenal job curating. She realized that the town itself was a monument. And so it, she became very aware about past and present and what that means in terms of the past that then creates the monument that you recognize in the present. And can you truly take moments from the past and make them present? And so her curatorial voice interwove with the city in a way that I've never seen in a biennial before, honestly. There was a generosity of that voice that was incredible. So. When you're wandering through the streets of Cartagena, which the streets, actually their names only exist for a block. So every block, the street name changes. And then it's this kind of labyrinth situation anyway. So everyone's always lost. And so the sense of discovery, both in terms of her curatorial voice and the physical sense of discovery through the place, just, you know, walked hand in hand everywhere you went. This year, in the first ever Cartagena Biennial, one of Janet's video installations is on view inside the town's historic naval museum. I did an installation of the piece that I shot in Indonesia, um, which is titled A Step on the Sun. Depending on the space, I vary the number of channels. And in Cartagena, it was a four-channel installation. So it was a kind of three-quarter piece where the viewer was immersed in peripherally as well as frontally um, within the volcano. I love the connection with the Naval Museum because I can't help but remember like an old family, you know, some family members singing about joining the Navy to see the world. The one thing that Berta did, which was also incredibly lovely, was include so many sound pieces so that you would walk out of my piece into a garden situation in the middle of the Museo Naval and uh, experience Kristen Oppenheim's piece where there's just voice singing, sail on, sail on, sailor from the Beach Boys, um, but in a kind of round, and it's so beautifully lyrical. And so it, it really puts you in, um, in, a, in a frame of mind. It changes. It changes your, your physical presence within the space. I like that word you were using, witness, because that seems to me what you feel through your work, somewhat witnessing something that you might not have ever had the thought about witnessing. National Geographic shows you this view, but you take us inside that view and make it dimensional and make it real and feel like you're, you understand a different, well, a metaphoric presence for that reality, I guess, which I think is really poetic. That's what I, I love about your work. But tell me what you're working on next. I'm in the middle of a new project, which is always an exciting place to be. It's a project that will open at the Blaffer Museum in Houston in January of 2015. And they're producing the new project for me, which is also a, a wonderful situation to be in, so I can really flex my art muscles here. And, uh, and you know, we've talked about, in, in the past interview, we talked about a personal biography and, um, and a relationship to 
relatives of mine who who have suffered from Alzheimer's or uh, autism. And in this case, I revisit both memories and new uh, new knowledge about Alzheimer's sufferers. The piece is developing threads. I'm in that stage where I'm not limiting myself in any way. I'm, I'm just following any thread and see where it takes me. Um, I, I think what makes a good artist is once you follow them, if you can edit it down, that is that moment that's essential. But, uh, but right now, I'm looking in, in all directions. So I've been at NYU in the brain research department uh, looking at imaging and trying to understand what the, uh, the proteins are that form on the brain. So there's this kind of very much science, you know, connection to science, which I, I love when my work overlaps and I get to personally learn new things and then bring them, you know, make leaps through the work. Working with scientists is important to Janet's projects, but extreme environments are indispensable. First and foremost, where this is, where this piece is kind of rooted, is in Chihuahua, Mexico, about a mile under the earth. There's a cavern there called the Nica Crystal Cavern. There's a, a silver mine above it, and when the miners were drilling down, uh, they got so deep because they were depleting the silver thread that they broke into a chamber and realized it was full of water, it was extremely hot. Um, but they realized there was something extraordinary in there and they couldn't figure out exactly what it was. But the mining company took the time to pump out the water. And what they found was um, it's about the size of a football field and it's, it, it has these selenite crystals that have formed, the, they are the size of Greek columns. So it's like physically walking into a geode. It's just beautiful, ridiculously beautiful and also ridiculously dangerous. Um, because it's sitting on a pool of magma, which is why the crystals formed in that scale, it ranges from like 160 to 180 degrees. It's 99% humidity. There, there was a consortium of scientists, global consortium of scientists, that wrote a contract with the mining company to get in there to do research. And, uh, and, and I love one of the things that they thought was it would be a great place to do the Mars project or Mars program research because some of the, the conditions were similar to Mars. That's some place you haven't thought about going yet. <laughs> Not yet. For me, the reason I want to go there is, of course, the visuals are compelling, and I'm seduced constantly, and, and I want to seduce my viewer. But when you go into this cavern, um, they custom-make a suit for you that has pockets all over it, and they put ice into all the pockets, so you're wearing an ice suit. And then you have a sealant suit that, that you seal on top of that. You have to breathe through an ice respirator, and you're still only allowed to be in there for 15 minutes tops. You're monitored by a medical team. And even with all that, as soon as you enter the cavern, within minutes, you start losing your cognitive skills. And so essentially, it creates the exact same symptoms as someone who's suffering from Alzheimer's. My grandfather was a collector, and um, two of his collections, stamps and minerals, are, are strong memories for me as a, as a child, you know, watching his pleasure. And then as he hit those moments where he was physically there, but, you know, the grandfather, the person I know, was gone and, and couldn't recognize any family members, he still had this connection to, to his mineral collection where he could, he could spout out the names of, of the scientific names of, of his minerals. He could tell you place, you know, and when and where he got stamps. And so that was his last connection. And so for me to go into a place that has those kind of memories for me, but then will remove memories in the physical now, it's the place I want to start and then let the threads kind of go off from there. 
I cannot help but remember how you had to have a special suit in the Arctic so you wouldn't freeze the minute you got outside. And now you're wearing an ice suit. It's still there, that desire for extreme, and certainly you seem to like heat at this point. <laughs> you know, I, I'm just in it for the clothes, really. It's um, anytime either I or someone else gets to wear some weird lycra suit, I am so all over that. I, um, but no, I, I obviously do like extremes. I like ends of the earth, and this is, I'm really excited to go there. Janet describes her vision for the exhibition she'll present at the Blaffer Museum in 2015. The project is going to end up being an installation that'll take up a floor of the museum, and it will not only have synchronized video moments within it, but it'll also have sound elements, which is the first time I'm going to be working specifically with sound. There'll also be some objects. I'm working with University of Houston uh, students to actually make uh, selenite crystals in a lab. So I'm having these great tie-ins with the community there and with the, with the university itself. They have uh, two amazing doctors, scientists, that have received grants for Alzheimer's research. So I'm, I'm using the resources at hand as well as traveling outside and, and to pull this piece together. There'll also then be a kind of distillation of the installation, uh, which will turn into a feature film, and this is my first. The, the final product will be fiction, within reality, as all fictions are. Um, so it'll be a construct from, from all sorts of elements. Super exciting. <laughs> I'm really happy to be able to share this on Fresh Art International. Thank you for being with me today. This has been great. Thank you so much, Kathy. This is great. Thank you. This is Kathy Bird. You've been listening to Fresh Talk with video artist Janet Biggs. Visit our site to read more about Janet, see excerpts of her fabulous video projects, and hear other Fresh Talks. Let's continue our conversation on Facebook and Twitter. I look forward to seeing you there. <laughs>